As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big subject shaping news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. No country in the world seems to have such a cyclical cycle of power like Turkey does. And looking at their borders changing over the centuries reminds me of the tide coming in and going out. The Phrygians, from what today is Turkey, grew to be one of the most dominant countries in the ancient world before they were broken by the Persians. Byzantium, based in modern-day Istanbul, was once the cultural capital of the world, carrying the torch to the once great Roman Empire, before it too was broken. The Ottoman Empire once stretched from modern-day Austria to Morocco to Sudan to Azerbaijan to Ukraine, before centuries of decay and the First World War came in, putting a boot on the neck of a dying man. What emerged from the First World War would be pretty familiar to the modern-day analyst, the Turkish Republic, a nation geographically in Asia but culturally tying itself to Europe. And from the end of World War I to the beginning of the 21st century, Turkey played a far more minor role in global machinations for dominance than what it was probably used to. The Anatolian tide was out to sea. In recent years, though, the tide seems to be coming back, and Turkey is now reasserting itself once again as a regional power, trying to extend its influence in all directions, and retread some of the old advancing paths their Ottoman ancestors would have. Turkish influence stretches from movies to culture, and they're now one of the region's major arms dealers, as well as suppliers of mercenaries for wars in the old Ottoman areas of interest like Libya and Somalia. They form the resource chains crucial to the economy of the Balkans, and they once again clash with the Greeks over the island of Cyprus. The coup de grace, though, was 2020, where we saw the major return of the Turks with their role in the battle for Nagorno-Karabakh. The Turks threw their weight behind their little brothers in Azerbaijan and dominated a conflict that had been frozen solid for almost 30 years. The Turks were back to being a regional power. With the success in Nagorno-Karabakh, Ankara now turns its attention to the east, to the ethnically Turkic nations of Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Turkmenistan. If Turkey could create such a close relationship with Azerbaijan, why couldn't they create the same kind of bond with their Turkey brothers across the Caspian Sea in the old Russian domains. Can Turkey hope to build a beachhead in a region dominated by Russian influence and Chinese money? How far will the Turkish tide come in this time? Ankara is desperately trying to build itself up as a pillar in Southern Europe and North Africa and the Middle East, whilst also trying to build themselves up as a pillar in Central Asia, all the while wondering if it's possible to achieve before the Turkish economy cracks and their gains head back out to sea. Can Turkey become the balance of power in Central Asia? Well, to talk about that, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Ripping up the backyard. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances – I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Turkey obviously views Central Asia as uh, an important area for its projected in its geopolitical influence. Central Asia is part of the Turkish uh, national myth. Turks came from Central Asia initially uh, to what is now Western Asia, where modern-day Turkey is located. And particularly under Erdogan, there has been quite a bit of uh, discussion about uh, the wider Turkic world, where Turkey would obviously play a very big role. And uh, the fact that out of uh, five post-Soviet states in the um, Central Asia, majority are Turkic, and uh, there's only one notable exception of Tajikistan, which is Persian-speaking. Turkey plays still a very big role at trying to have this influence and to insert itself in the area where previously it was the Soviet and Russian sphere of influence, and now it's obviously more of a battleground between different competing powers uh, from uh, immediate neighborhood and further away. Alex Kokterov is a principal research analyst at IHS Market, specializing in Russia, Ukraine, and the former Soviet states. He joins us today. Well, Russia, you know, realistically entered uh, the Central Asian space in the 19th century, when in the process of the 19th century, uh, these lands were conquered uh, in a series of uh, military uh, engagements by Russia. And this conquest continued into the early years of the Soviet Union. It took quite a while for the Soviet Union to establish full territorial control um, and to stamp out the armed resistance which was present in parts of Central Asia. So for a very long time, obviously, Central Asia was dominated by the Russian Empire originally, then the Soviet space. And uh, from the Soviet perspective, it was very much kind of... uh, uh, you know, the end of the road uh, due to the geography of the place, but also due to the politics. The Soviet Union traded with both East and West, but not so much with the South. Uh, and that's why the feeling of the backyard was shaped by the history and geography of the Soviet Central Asia. But once the Soviet Union broke up in 1991, uh, it all changed and new routes have opened and uh, there are completely uh, new geographies which are in the process of being created. Turkey's relationships with these Central Asian republics is anything but a monolith. How they work with Tashkent, the capital of Uzbekistan, is very different to how they work with Dushanbe, the capital of Tajikistan. Can you elaborate a bit on this for us? Well, to start with, obviously, Turkey would be much more likely to have uh, uh, closer relations with countries of the Turkic world because of these geopolitical reasons I outlined. But also these countries have significant uh, 
natural resources, uh, uh, which include uh, mineral resources in Kazakhstan, um, Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. Kazakhstan is a big player in the energy markets and uh, uh, Kazakhstan is also a very big exporter of agricultural products. Uh, from the economic perspective, uh, there is a lot of potential. It's very uh, of significant interest uh, for the Turkish businesses to uh, to have presence in these markets and uh, uh, to get a decent share of these markets as well. One organization that Turkey is trying to use to build its relations with the Central Asian Republics is the Turkic Council, also known as the Organization of Turkic States. A group containing Turkey, Azerbaijan, Hungary, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Turkmenistan. Can you take us through how Turkey is intending to use the Turkic Council and how important it is to these countries? I think, you know, the Turkic Council is a, a vehicle for uh, projecting this geopolitical influence in the Central Asian world because the uh, majority of the countries in Central Asia are Turkic. And again, they are also interested in diversifying uh, trade and uh, uh, diversifying their uh, economic relations with other countries. They are willing to see more investment uh, from different sources, and this includes Turkey. So overall, I think, um, you know, it's, it's a very important vehicle for both Turkey, but also the countries of the region. Moscow has always been a bit suspicious of other countries trying to gain influence in what they once viewed as their backyard, and looks at Ankara, which is the capital of Turkey, a little bit cautiously at the moment. You see, this isn't the first time that Turkey has gained a major influence in a former Soviet state. Many people view Turkey's relationship with the former Soviet state of Azerbaijan as an almost big brother-little brother relationship these days. So how did Russia react to Turkey gaining such a foothold in a country that once directly took its orders from Moscow? I think Russia obviously is not uh, too happy about uh, emergence of other uh, geopolitical players in the South Caucasus space, because overall it views the entire post-Soviet space as its um, area of privileged interest. But following the events in October and November 2020, Russia managed to insert itself uh, on the ground with a small but still sizable peacekeeping force in the Nagorno-Karabakh area, where Russia now has military presence, allegedly for peacekeeping purposes, but uh, it uh, gives Russia a foot in, a foot in the door uh, and allows uh, to exercise more influence uh, in the region uh, where Azerbaijan needs to talk to Russia uh, on any issues relating to, to what's happening in the South Caucasus. When you travel to Central Asia, particularly in the case of Kazakhstan, you find a somewhat odd relationship between countries. When you talk with the average Kazakh citizen, most of them have friends and pretty good relations with the average Russian citizen. Whereas when it comes to China, the government and oligarchs have good relationships with Beijing, but there's quite a lot of Sinophobia in certain Kazakh communities. Is this a similar dynamic when it comes to Turkey? You know, does Turkey have good relations with the average Kazakh citizen or just with the government, or do they have good relations with both the government and the citizens in, inside the Central Asian republics? There is a presence of uh, Central Asian worker migrants, including from Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan uh, in Turkey. There is a presence of workers from Central Asian states in Turkey. It is likely to change due to the uh, ongoing economic weaknesses in Turkey. Uh, and if, for instance, uh, the 
lira, the Turkish lira, becomes less competitive uh, and uh, loses more value, it would it would make obviously uh, Turkey less of a prospective markets for worker migrants from places such as Uzbekistan, which has a labor surplus and has been exporting its labor to other markets, including Russia. Do you think these new moves by Turkey and Central Asia are just an effort to make sure that the minerals and resources they do get from the Central Asian republics continue to flow? Or is Turkey hoping to pitch itself as the balance of power in a region increasingly in competition between the Russians and the Chinese? Turkey's ambition under Erdogan is to play a significantly larger role than it previously played uh, in, say, you know, second half of the 20th century. Uh, so in order to do that, uh, you need to have a geopolitical influence outside of your national borders. And using this avenue of the Turkic-speaking world is definitely one of the elements uh, which uh, allows for this geopolitical influence, where Turkey can be bigger uh, than uh, you know it currently is. And yes, there are specific commercial considerations, but also the uh, geopolitical ambitions, which are, again, very much based on the national founded myth of the Turkic uh, unity and the fact that the original Turks arrived in the Western Asia where modern Turkey is from Central Asia. So this national myth obviously plays a big role. And I think it's one of the reasons why Turkey will be very keen on increasing its uh, influence in this region. At the same time, I don't think it's it's some sort of binary uh, situation because uh, countries can complement each other in certain aspects in terms of uh, you know, business ties, investments, and even security arrangements. And in case of Central Asia, we've already seen that it's not just Russia that plays a role there, but China has been very actively involved. Uh, and also to a degree, Iran had at least some presence, at least there was an attempt to build some presence in Tajikistan. Uh, it's a mixed picture and, you know, you have all these different powers trying to insert themselves into the region and to offer opportunities for uh, both developing bilateral political ties, but also economic uh, opportunities. Uh, and um, I think it's going to remain like this and we're going to see more this of this geopolitical competition where it's not going to be just China and Russia, but also Turkey. Uh, also, you know, the EU trying to offer something and India as well. When we look at Turkish or Ottoman history, expansion has almost always been either heading north into Europe and the Balkans or south into the Arabian world or even southwest into Africa. And although Turkic nations like Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan share cultural ties with Turkey as well as a semi-intelligible mutual language, Central Asia, for one reason or another, has not been the primary focus of Turkish leadership. In fact, since Kemal Ataturk, the founder of the Turkish Republic, there has long been this focus to try and bring Turkey into the European community, to try and somewhat westernize the nation. But after years and years of snubbing from countries like Poland, who actively fight against Turkish entry into the EU, Turkey is seeking warmer receptions elsewhere. What we see now is Turkey gaining a much more influential position, 
with Turkish-backed fighters in Libya, Somalia, Azerbaijan, and Syria. But at the same time, this is all happening whilst the Turkish lira, their currency, is currently in freefall. So will Turkey be able to weather the storm at home and rebuild some of the glory days of the Ottoman Empire? Or is Turkey simply overstretching itself and heading for disaster? Well, for that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. A Turkish Delight We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Turkey is looking within 360 degrees now. You know, early on in the in the Erdogan era, Turkey did try to shift the focus of its national security policy uh, away from the old cliche of being a bridge between East and West, but, but firmly anchored in the West to still a bridge between East and West, but now uh, anchored uh, more in the East. And I, and I think subsequently, so during the course of the last, you know, however many years, uh, several years, uh, Turkey has has shifted to much more of a, a 360 degree view. So, and I know we'll talk about this in a moment, but with a strong focus on Africa, uh, as well as on the Western Balkans, and now on the Black Sea and Russia, Ukraine. And a lot of this is driven by the desire to do business. A lot of it is driven by Turkey's self image as a stabilizer or stabilizing force. Uh, and then today, a lot of this is driven by uh, a desire to, a nostalgic desire, I should say, uh, to rekindle ties among the Turkic countries. So the, the push to the, toward the east now is less ideological and less in the vein of uh, neo-Ottomanism, which is, you know, I think an overused and now sort of an outdated cliche, uh, and is more about Turkey uh, developing its, its power economic, political, and even military, technological, in, in a way that, again, is, is seen in Ankara as a stabilizing force that also is helping Turkey rise as a, as a regional power, of course not as a global power, but as a regional power that enjoys global respect. Matthew Breiser is a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council and Eurasia Center, who's also the director of the International Center for Defense in Tallinn as well as serving as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Europe and Eurasia, and the U.S. Co-Chair for the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe's OSCE Minsk Group. Breiser was also the mediator for the Nagorno-Karabakh, Cyprus, South Ossetia, and Abkhazia conflicts, and served in the White House as Director for European and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Staff. On top of that, he was also the U.S. Ambassador to Azerbaijan, and we're thrilled to have our good friend Matt back on the show today. You know, in... in in my time, when I was working at the White House and at the State Department, a big part of my activities was uh, trying to build support within Europe for Turkey's EU accession. Uh, and my, you know, our European allies and friends would say, well, it's really none of your business because you're not part of the club, uh, to which you know, my colleagues and I would respond, but we have a vested interest in Europe, our, our core allies, 
uh, providing an incentive for Turkey to pursue modernizing political and economic reform. And it's, it's the, the possibility of, of becoming a member of the European Union that is the most powerful motivating force for Turkey to uh, implement those reforms, which are good for Turkey, first and foremost. But those reforms are, are good for all of Turkey's allies because it makes Turkey a more stable and more potent partner. Um, but that option is, is, has clearly been off the table since 2007 or so, when it was really the Greek Cypriots uh, who started pushing for the EU to, to, to close various chapters that had been open in Turkey's accession process or chapters of the EU Accords uh, uh, Communitaire. So the, you know, the, the, the various chapters that any country that aspires to EU accession must go through in terms of uh, reforming its or adjusting its domestic legislation to uh, conform to that of the European Union. Um, that's off the table. And we'll remember, you know, about this time, I mean, in the mid you know, first decade of the 2000s, uh, the great French leader, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, he, he made the point that, well, the European Union is is fundamentally a Christian club. And and that statement was, was directed at Turkey. So the Greek Cypriots have been in the lead in making it impossible for Turkey to make progress and its EU accession. Uh, but the French have been right there, kind of hiding behind the Greek Cypriots all the way through, and Germany as well. Re remember back again during this period around 2006, 2007, uh, then Chancellor Angela Merkel made the point that Turkey should become a privileged partner of the European Union you know, without ever really defining what that means. Uh, but for your average Turkish person, and certainly for Turkish politicians, um, this is a grave insult and a disappointment, and it's, it's painful. Because what it's saying to them is, yeah, Giscard d'Estaing was right. The EU is a Christian club and we're never going to join because of Islamophobia. Uh, I mean, I think a counter argument that Germany would use and Merkel would use is like, it's not about being Islamophobic. It's not the fact that Turkey is a Muslim majority country that uh, prompts Germany to oppose its membership, but it's instead that Turkey's so big. And if it became a member, it would enjoy such an outsized role in decision making and on issues that now, in hindsight, Germans might say, and French would certainly say, uh, on issues where Turkey uh, and, the, and European countries' interests often diverge, like, like in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, but going back to your question, uh, ultimately, whatever the, the European Union member states' justifications are for their policy of not wanting Turkey ever to enter the EU, despite the rhetoric to the contrary, the Turks feel hurt. And so, yes, they, they felt they had no choice but to turn east, uh, but also to look south to, to Africa. And I, I think, you know, Turkey was going to look toward Africa anyway, regardless of whether uh, its EU accession was on track, simply because of the fact that the, the, the business opportunities are enormous. Uh, in Africa. And so we've seen Turkey throughout this entire period when when EU accession was running hot or running cold, Turkey consistently was expanding its diplomatic footprint by opening tens of new embassies in Africa and also expanding Turkish Airlines, uh, its routes and its, its presence uh, as a form of Turkish diplomacy throughout Africa uh, and many other countries as well. Most of these moves towards Africa and the Middle East have come about during the presidency of Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Are these policies an objective of just Erdogan, or will this looky strategy continue on once he does eventually leave office? Turkey's interest and in, in activity in Central Asia under Erdogan is bit, way bigger than, than 
just President Erdogan. I mean, before Erdogan, back in the late 1990s, and, and, and even in the early 1990s, you know, um, immediately after the Soviet Union collapsed, the Turkish government and Turkish business leaders were eager to uh, establish ties with the newly independent, so-called newly independent states, uh, and pursued all kinds of business opportunities in energy and textiles and uh, natural resources, commodities. And, you know, at that time, and I experienced this firsthand in my diplomatic uh, capacity, uh, Turkey often treated the Central Asian, their Central Asian brothers and sisters as, as well as like, you know, little siblings. And it really grated on the Central uh, Asians. Uh, and Turkey seemed to feel it was in Turks that they were somehow so much more sophisticated than the Central European, Central Asians. Uh, and it led to that first wave of Turkish uh, business people not being welcomed with the open arms that, that uh, the Turkish side expected. So that all happened before Erdogan, and that will continue happening. Yes, Erdogan has resurrected uh, Turkey's role in, in, the, in the Turkic world, uh, hosted a summit, as we know, uh, in, I guess it was in November, and renamed the organization, the, what is it, the Council of Turkic States. Um, but that's, that's, that's an enduring Turkish interest in, in wanting to rekindle Turkey's you know, centuries-old and millennia-old ties with Turkic brethren who, after all, originally come from, no, actually east of Central Asia, come from what is you know, Russia's Altai region and, and Mongolia. Uh, when it comes to Africa, while um, the push into Africa is new under Erdogan, now, I, I sense here as you know, somebody who's, who's active in Turkish business circles as well as my you know, foreign affairs analysis, um, the opportunities to do business in, uh, across all of Africa are so big that, that business people who have nothing to do with uh, Erdogan's ruling AKP party uh, are, are quite active. Uh, a lot of activity in Northern Africa, North Africa on the energy side, especially in Algeria, uh, in Libya, when things quiet down, there'll be a big Turkish presence again, but also in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Sudan, well, in, in Sudan, which is not Sub-Saharan Africa, but also in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Nigeria, uh, all throughout Africa, uh, non-Erdogan-affiliated uh, Turkish business people are, are getting quite active. Moscow is never particularly chuffed when other countries seek to gain influence in the former Soviet Union states particularly when the country trying to do it as a member of NATO. Do you think Turkey trying to increase its influence in states in the Caucasus and Central Asia will further strain the relationship between Ankara and Moscow? I think the relationship between Moscow and Ankara is already stressed. Uh, and I think in, you know, in my former hometown in Washington, D.C., there's a misperception that Turkey has somehow tilted away from NATO and toward Russia. And I understand why people think that. I mean, there's, you know, of course, most important, Turkey's purchase of Russia's uh, advanced S-400 air defense system, which resulted in U.S. sanctions under the countering America's adversaries through Sanctions Act, as well as Turkey being kicked out of the F-35 project. Um, Turkey also has been uh, one of the three co-chairs of the so-called Astana process, uh, the other two co-chairs being Russia and Iran, uh, with regard to uh, pursuing a political settlement in Syria. Um, and, and, and Erdogan has met many times with, with uh, Putin. Um, however, uh, in Ukraine, Turkey and Russia are facing serious differences, with Turkey condemning the annexation of Crimea. And with Turkey and Ukraine developing a vibrant uh, cooperative relationship on military technologies, which focuses on Turkish drones, 
but as well on stealth uh, naval vessels that Turkey is building. And then the two countries are agreeing to build a military aircraft jet engine together. But we also see severe Turkish tension in Syria, where a couple of years ago in, uh, in uh, the northwest Syria's Idlib province, Turkey uh, took on Russian military forces uh, and killed a fair number of them when the Russian forces and Assad's forces uh, attacked Idlib and attacked civilians in Idlib, as they're doing right now, and I would argue committing war crimes. Uh, and during that previous attack, this was in, um, in late February of 2020, 35 or so Turkish troops were killed by a Russian air assault. And Ankara responded with uh, a highly sophisticated drone strike uh, combined with standoff artillery. Uh, as I said, that ended up killing some Russian soldiers and destroying a huge amount of Assad's armor. Then again, a few months later, in, in May of 2020, um, it was Turkish uh, drones again that played a critical role in stopping the military offensive by uh, the, the uh, Eastern Libyan warlord Al Haftar together with Russian mercenaries of the Wagner group. So there's, there's a lot of tension between Russia and Turkey. So in Central Asia, I think if Turkey tries to play a muscular role on the security side, yes, that, the tension between Turkey and Russia will be even higher. Um, but so far, Turkey hasn't shown much interest in playing such a security role east of Azerbaijan. In Azerbaijan, of course, Turkey has emerged since, since a year ago, since the 44-day war between Azerbaijan and Armenia, as a critical player. I mean, for the first time in 100 years, there are Turkish troops on the ground in, Azerba in Azerbaijan. Um, and Turkey's political support and military technical support was essential to Azerbaijan's breathtakingly quick precise and decisive victory over Armenia. I mean, the next place where Turkey has expressed such an interest is, of course, in Qatar, uh, and then in Afghanistan as well, when it comes to keeping Hamid Karzai International Airport open. Uh, clashing or increasing tension with the country on security issues in Central Asia, however, is with China, though that, that's a different issue. Now, for a bit of backstory for this question here, Last April, a small conflict broke out in Central Asia between the Turkic nation of Kyrgyzstan and the semi-Persian nation of Tajikistan in the Batkan region of Kyrgyzstan, right there in the south. As we've talked about a few times on the show now, the borders of many of these Central Asian republics are a complete casserole of nonsense, with areas like the Sokh Enclave being populated by ethnic Tajiks inside Kyrgyzstan's borders, but technically belonging to Uzbekistan. In this border conflict between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, over 50 people were killed in the clashes, and a ceasefire was eventually called, but the tensions and reasons for the conflict are still remaining. Now that things have begun to settle down, we are seeing Turkey getting more involved in this region, now even going on to supplying a decent amount of Bayraktar drones and military advisors to the Kyrgyz government, the results of which seem to be emboldening the Kyrgyz in the border areas. With just three weeks ago, Kyrgyzstan renaming the ethnically Tajik town of Islana Torazakov, changing the name to honor the first ethnic Kyrgyz head of the Kyrgyz Communist Party, a direct jab at Tajikistan. Seeing as Turkey is selling drones and military advisors to Kyrgyzstan at the moment, do you think Turkey is looking to get involved in the Batkan conflict the next time it flares up, in much the same way they got involved in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict in Armenia and Azerbaijan last year? And thank you for raising that, because I did overlook that factor when I said that Turkey hasn't shown a lot of security interest in Central Asia. That's a critical factor. Um, and you know, in the case of Ukraine, uh, a few weeks ago, President Putin, uh, actually in early December, he, he 
called President Erdogan and complained that uh, Turkish drones were being used by the Ukrainian forces and one had destroyed, in fact, a Russian howitzer uh, in eastern Ukraine. So if, if Turkish drones end up playing a significant role in a conflict, God forbid, between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, that'll create some tension with Russia. It will. Um, but I don't sense that Turkey has anywhere near the ambition uh, to support the Kyrgyzstani government as in the case of Azerbaijan, because we always have to remember that um, the slogan uh, that, that describes uh, Azerbaijani-Turkish relations, in their own words, is one nation and two states. So Azerbaijan is really special for, for Turkey. I mean, besides, you know, Cyprus or Northern Cyprus, there's, there's no country that's as significant, I think. Uh, and I'm not saying Northern Cyprus is a country. I'm not saying it is or it isn't. But <laughs> there's, no, there's no external region that's more important to Turkey than Azerbaijan besides Northern Cyprus. And, you know, when it comes to the t Turkey supplying drones, to uh, to a, a country that's friendly with with Russia that becomes a combatant. Well, that's as you said, that's exactly what Turkey did with Azerbaijan, uh, and the outcome of all that is not that Russia and Turkey had a serious clash, but instead that Turkey was able to negotiate with Russia a Turkish peacekeeping presence on the ground in Azerbaijan that provides eyes and ears for NATO on the, on the significantly larger Russian peacekeeping force in Azerbaijan. So what I'm saying is despite Turkey's decisive military help to Azerbaijan against Armenia's client, which is, Ar I mean, uh, Russia's client, which is Armenia, Turkey and Russia are still finding a way to, to keep their relations more or less on track, despite the, the, the growing tension with regard to Ukraine and the Black Sea. Well, staying on the Russia angle for a bit, Turkey has been very supportive of Islamic governments like the Muslim Brotherhood. So if Turkey were to support Islamic movements in majority Islamic areas in Russia, like Chechnya or Dagestan, how do you think Russia would respond to that? Um, if Turkey were to do what you just said, I think Russia would react very negatively and aggressively. But Turkey never would. First of all, the, the element of political Islam uh, in, in the Erdogan political system, if I may put it that way, is soft. Um, you know, I think, or my interpretation at least, is initially it was uh, a banner raised by President Erdogan and his allies in the AKP, the Justice and Development Party, uh, to win their initial election. And, and that required them to rally the base, the base being conservative Turks who are, who are proud of their Islamic traditions proud of the fact that the, they, they can dress in an Islamic way and that uh, Turkish women are quote unquote uh, allowed to dress in an Islamic way. Uh, and, um, but that has faded. You know, I think the AKP and Erdogan have become much more pragmatic uh, after they secured their uh, multiple electoral victories uh, and now are focused on their own power and remaining in power, and then in in um, raising Turkey as a regional power of its own that can pursue and defend Turkish Tur Turkey's uh, rights uh, as, as Turks interpret them. So um, the the groups that we all worry about, frankly, in Chechnya or in Dagestan, are largely Salafi extremists. Um, Salafism uh, is is uh, especially in in uh, Dagestan. Um, Salafism is, sort of, and Wahhabism, Wahhabism, a form of Salafism, is an interpretation of Islam that is much more austere, that, that looks back to the, uh, you know, the, the uh, 11th and 10th centuries for inspiration. Uh, there's an expression that, you know, the gates of Ijtihad closed in, in, the, uh, t in the 1000s, and that meant that for, for Salafism, um, using deductive reasoning to understand the world, based on um, Sharia 
ended. You know, all the basic, the key questions had been answered back in, in the 11th century and 10th century. And so there's no reason to evolve uh, Islam anymore. And so you get a much more austere version of Islam than in Turkey, which is you know, where the interpretation of Islam is that, of course, democracy and Islam are compatible, as are modernity in Islam. And you know, Islam needs to keep evolving together with, with the world. So uh, Erdogan's interpretation of Islam would never want to see what the, the Kadyrovs, uh, although his father was not a Salafist, but uh, yeah, the, 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 the extremism of Chechnya or of Dagestan, much of which is supported from Saudi Arabia, that is very much against the Turkish traditions of Islam and Erdogan's as well. And we, you know, we've seen over the last few years that there's been a significant degree of tension between Turkey on the one hand and then Saudi Arabia and UAE and Egypt on the other hand because Turkey is supportive, I mean the Turkish government is supportive of the Muslim Brotherhood which again follows a, a different form of Islam I, I would argue than, than the Chechens or the Dagestanis though there are some elements of Salafism uh, but but anyway Turkey is supportive of the Muslim Brotherhood and it's the Saudis, uh, the Saudi government and the Egyptians and the UAE have been on the side of uh, opposing uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and, 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 and the current Saudi government of opposing uh, Saudi Salafism. And, 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 and even though the mass of the population of Saudi Arabia may be adherence to Salafism, it's a very complex mix, but this is a long-winded way of saying uh, I don't think there's any chance the Erdogan government would play those sorts of Islamist extremist cards in Dagestan or Chechnya. One of the main cards Russia has to play in Central Asia is the fact that most Central Asian goods have to pass through Russian territory at some point. If you're Uzbekistan for the sake of the argument, you can't easily send your goods to the world market in almost any direction. If you send them south, Turkmenistan has very tight borders, and even then if you get through that, you go into Iran, which is currently under sanctions. You'll struggle to send your stuff through Afghanistan at this point due to a lack of rail and road infrastructure. And even if you're going into the Chinese markets, it often requires going into Russia to avoid the majority of the Tianjin mountains and use the far more accessible Russian rail lines. If these Central Asian nations could build better routes though, across the Caspian Sea to the west, into Azerbaijan, into Turkey, and then into Europe, that could solve the direction dilemma that these countries like Uzbekistan face. Do you think Turkey is in a position to build itself up to become the bridge between Central Asia and the European and Middle Eastern markets? especially when it comes to projects like the Trans-Caspian Pipeline, which will connect the immense gas fields of Turkmenistan to the Turkish-European gas pipelines by just adding around 30 kilometers of additional pipeline. Yeah, I was really active back in the late 90s in the U.S. efforts to help Turkmenistan and Azerbaijan and Turkey and Georgia uh, develop the Trans-Caspian Pipeline. And at that time, yeah, Russia was doing everything possible it could to block it, uh, ranging from ridiculous threats about an environmental damage that the natural gas pipeline would, would cause. And I say ridiculous because the, the, the environmental damage to the Ta Caspian Sea has been done by uh, oil pipelines that rupture and pollute, and those were all Russian projects. So to say that a natural gas pipeline is going to damage the, the marine environment of the Caspian is ridiculous. Nonetheless, Russia used the threats of environmental degradation and how a pipeline could damage the habitat of the Caspian Seal, uh, along with outright threats to the leadership of Turkmenistan. I mean, physical threats. I mean, I, I heard the threats myself from the, the previous Turkmenistani president that uh, you know, Russian leadership threatens that if the, if the Turkmenistani gas goes west, uh, that could be very harmful to his health and to the stability of Turkmenistan. So that was, you know, that was a long time ago. That was 20 plus years ago. Um, 
Russia still is not in favor of such a pipeline, but its opposition is, is less strong. You know, in recent years, there's been a, a convention concluded by all the Caspian littoral states that tries to resolve uh, the maritime boundary issues. Uh, Russia, in that agreement, does reserve the right uh, to make arguments against the Trans-Caspian pipeline. But, you know, what we've seen in the last uh, year or so, when Azerbaijan and Turkmenistan agreed jointly to develop the field in the middle of the Caspian Sea that had divided them for, for decades, it's called, now called Dostluk, or friendship, that one of the companies brought in to develop the field is a Russian company, Lukoil. And it's clear, based on the statements of the governments of both Turkmenistan and Azerbaijan, that if and when that oil and gas is developed, it's going to be exported to the West. So Lukoil knows that and has joined the consortium, uh, and it'll probably be the operator of the consortium. Um, and so that suggests to me there's an evolution in Moscow's thinking about how unacceptable uh, some sort of linkage of Caspian, uh, of Turkmenistan's gas uh, to Azerbaijan would be. One more point is maybe one reason why Russia is uh, less actively opposing a Trans-Caspian bit of infrastructure, which could be modest, as you say. It could, it could run just for like 60 kilometers from uh, the offshore field known as Block 1 in Turkmenistan waters to Azerbaijan's existing oil and gas infrastructure at the, at the mega field, Azeri should argue initially. Uh, Russia, Russia is maybe less opposed to that, A, because it's on very um, weak legal ground now to oppose it, based upon this agreement among the littoral states a couple of years ago, August 2020, to, to demarcate their borders, but also because uh, in November, Turkmenistan, Iran, and Azerbaijan reached an agreement, which is now operational uh, to move Turkmenistani gas to Iran and then swap an equivalent volume of Iranian gas to Azerbaijan. So Turkmenistani gas is now moving from Turkmenistan to Azerbaijan. And there's really nothing Russia can do to stop that uh, other than other than, you know, political or military threats, which clearly Russia has decided not to make uh, anymore. All of this, though, is coming about during a period of financial crisis in Turkey, with the strength of the Turkish lira crashing dramatically. Can Turkey still hope to be as influential in their foreign policy with a fracturing economy on the home front? Yeah, so the lira is the worst performing uh, emerging market uh, uh, currency in the world. And in a phrase, I mean, or in a sentence, the, the lira is doing so poorly because uh, both Turkish citizens and then international investors have lost confidence in, in the Turk Turkish lira's value. I mean, that sounds like a circular argument. Uh, but, you know, the, the value of a currency is so closely tied to what people's expectations are of, of, of its strength. And so you know, President Erdogan has come to be seen outside of Turkey as following a highly unorthodox economic theory, which is that to control inflation, you need to decrease interest rates. I mean, orthodox economic theory says the opposite, as we all know. Right. If you want to if you want to uh, decrease inflation, you need to raise interest rates, but if, if you keep decreasing interest rates, well, you're undermining the value of your currency locally. We, we don't need to go into the economic reasoning for that, but that's conventional economic theory. And so President Erdogan, I think he sincerely believes, based on his own experience in business running a, a, a food processing company, uh, he believes that you know as interest rates go up, for individual Turkish businesses, uh, getting loans is more difficult, especially if you're getting uh, loans from abroad. And so businesses can't grow. Uh, and so the economy uh, is, is, is weaker. You have to import more products. So prices go up. So you have inflation. 
and it's 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 all based on his personal experience. And so, if you're a foreign investor and you see an unorthodox uh, economic theory or financial theory, you lose confidence in in the lira. And so that's what's happened. So, you know, for for a long time, for uh, up until um, the autumn of last year, until October. Uh, the, the, the Turkish government had been trying to strengthen the value of the lira by spending its foreign exchange. It spent uh, you know, over 100 billion U.S. dollars to try to prop up the lira. Um, but that didn't work because uh, I think international financiers and, and financial analysts uh, had a sense that the Turkish central bank was not being able to operate independently but was coming under severe political pressure, again, to keep interest rates low. Another reason why, of course, any sitting president, any sitting president wants interest rates low is because the lower the interest rates, actually the higher the economic growth because companies can borrow and they can grow and, and then the economy can grow. And with a series of elections having been passed and now a, another big one coming up, President Erdogan also wants to pursue economic growth at all costs uh, at, at as high a level as possible. Another factor in this was that the, the U.S. government or Donald Trump in August of 2018 actually tried to weaken the Turkish uh, economy in protest to the then imprisonment of a U.S. evangelical Christian pastor, Pastor Brunson. And that then also led to a severe uh, weakening of the international confidence in the lira because it seemed like the U.S. was maybe going to go to economic war uh, with the Turkish government. Now, fortunately, that crisis passed quickly, but the damage was done and the lira began its collapse back at that point. Um, so now looking to the future in response to your question, I think that international markets are not going to have confidence in the lira uh, as long as the, they perceive that the Turkish government, the fundamental policy of the Turkish government is going to be to pressure the central bank of Turkey uh, to keep decreasing interest rates. Um, now, the Turkish government in, in mid-December did put in place a new uh, policy to try to protect Turkish depositors who, who keep their savings in lira uh, against a decrease in the value of the lira vis-a-vis -vis the dollar. And the Turkish government has promised uh, to make up any losses that Turkish depositors would, would incur if, if the lira were to drop in value against the dollar. Uh, when that policy was announced, the lira immediately gained about 40% in value against the dollar. But in subsequent weeks, it's begun to lose value again. So it went, so the Turkish uh, the lira reached the, its, its, its all-time historic low against the dollar in around December, I think it was the 12th or something. It was 18.4 lira to the dollar. Uh, to put that in perspective, when I arrived in Turkey in 2012, it was about 1.4 lira to the dollar. So it was up to 18.4 to the dollar. Uh, when that new policy was announced by the Turkish government in mid-December, the lira then immediately gained on the dollar and it was at 10 around 10.4 to the dollar. Now it's lost some again, lost some of its value, and it's trading around 13 and a half to the dollar as of today. So the markets are starting to say, okay, you, you know, you, you're doing something to protect the lira against the dollar. That's good. We have some confidence, but we don't think it's sustainable because at some point, you know, the Turkish government is going to have to pay a lot of money uh, to, to insulate and to protect Turkish depositors who are depositing in Turkish lira. Um, and, and that's going to lead again to this return of pressure to you know print more money or to essentially to when put it in a different way to decrease interest rates and get more money into the system and that's inevitably then going to lead to a decrease in the value of the lira uh, and it's going to lead to you know obviously a higher uh, government uh, budget deficit in, in 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 Ankara 
And my last question today, do you think Turkey is setting itself up to be the pillar of influence in Central Asia, to become the balance of power between Russia and China in the region, or will Central Asia remain midway down Ankara's priority list? I think I think Turkey's going to focus its energy in 360 degrees. So if if you know you you think about Turkey, and if you're a Turkish leader, you you look at your country as being partially Middle Eastern, um, partially Balkan, partially Black Sea, uh, and, and and then largely Anatolian and, and Turkic, uh, and so. It's going to pursue an activist foreign policy in uh, all those areas. Oh, and of course, a Mediterranean power as well. So in all those areas, it's going to pursue an activist policy. Uh, and it wants to be a leader in all those regions. Now, I say activist. Turkey would say defensive, but also opportunistic. If you're Greek, you're saying Turkey's being aggressive and violating international law in the Mediterranean. If you're Turkey, you say, no, we're not. We don't agree with Greece's interpretation of international law. And we believe Greece has unfairly allocated an uh, exclusive economic zone to itself that is way too big if you look at the way conventionally people draw exclusive economic zones. So, so Turkey's you know, going to be very active in the Mediterranean, but it's going to be very active in the Black Sea as well, not only because of Russia-Ukraine tensions, but also because Turkey's discovered a lot of natural gas and is going to start producing it in the Black Sea. Central Asia will remain, however, important to Turkey for, for uh, sort of nostalgic, and ethnic reasons. Again, I mentioned that Turkey thinks of itself as a as an Anatolian and a Turkic country, and the Turks originally come from Central Asia uh, and and you know the areas between Mongolia and, and and the Altai region of Russia. So Central Asia will be will remain sort of generally kind of vaguely significant in the Turkic psyche and the Turkic mindset. But I don't see Turkey looking for some sort of a power grab in Central Asia where it gets involved and gets in the middle of China and Russia duking it out. I think Turkey will want the Turkic states of Central Asia to prosper. So that includes, and the Turkic states, as you said, doesn't include Tajikistan, but includes Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Kaz uh, yeah, and Uzbekistan. Um, wants to see them prosper, wants to see them feeling closer and closer to Turkey in every way, emotionally. Um, yes, politically. Uh, there could be some security cooperation, but I think that'll be minor, but certainly economically. Turkey would like, like to see energy flows and investment flows in uh, the investment going in two directions, the energy flowing toward Turkey, uh, but not with Turkey being dominant, but with Turkey being respected and being seen in Central Asia, at least as important as Russia and as China for the Central Asian states. One of Russia's most influential programs for the Central Asian region is its work visa policies for Central Asians who want to work inside Russia. Many, particularly Tajik and Kyrgyz citizens, see the low wages in their own country and decide to instead send a member of the family to travel to Russia and work as a street cleaner or a laborer for a period of time. With the money the person makes being sent home to the Tajik families being much more than that man could have ever hoped to make in his own country. This practice has become so widespread in the region that around 30% of the Kyrgyz and Tajik economy is now made up of a remittance money coming back into the country, which sends a message to the halls of government in these countries that to go against Russia risks Russia changing the visa rules overnight and gutting a third of their economy with a swipe of a pen. With the success Moscow has had with this program, will Turkey look to achieve the same thing? And how does Turkey interact with the Central Asians already working inside their borders today. 
Well, for that, we turn to our third guest. Part three. With friends like these... Central Asia is uh, an important uh, region geopolitically in the world between China and Russia, uh, five distinct countries that emerged from the former Soviet Union in the early 1990s. Um, from a human rights perspective, uh, it's, a, it's a, a country where there are five authoritarian governments, which um, have been through different phases over the last 30 years, but essentially have retained uh, an authoritarian form of government in which human rights play a very limited role, where ordinary people's rights are, are not really respected. People being jailed for politically motivated reasons, lack of rights for women and girls, domestic violence. Issues around these sorts of things are very prominent in Central Asia. Economically, it's a varied landscape. Kazakhstan is by far the strongest economy in the region with large oil and gas reserves, huge uranium deposits. On the other hand, Uzbekistan is the largest country by population, with over 30 million people. And Uzbekistan's gone through a, a significant political change since 2016, since a new president came to power, President Mirzi Yoyev. Uh, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan are much poorer and smaller. Kyrgyzstan has a um, a record of, of being more open to political change, in a sense. There's been a whole range of different governments in, in Kyrgyzstan over the years. Civil society organizations have a bit more of a footing, a little bit more independent media in that country. And it's been more politically unstable in that sense. Tajikistan has had a very traditional authoritarian leader ever since becoming independent. And Turkmenistan is the other country, the outlier really, one of the most authoritarian and closed countries in the world, perhaps on a par with North Korea. Hugh Williamson is the director for Europe and Central Asia for Human Rights Watch, as well as a fantastic journalist focusing on human rights issues around the globe for a long time now. He joins us today. I mean, we, we, we tend not to compare too much between countries, but one can say that in Kyrgyzstan, there, there has been more opportunities, let's say, for people to, to, to express their rights, you know, um, demonstrating on the streets or um, expressing their views in public, in the media or online on social media. A parliament which over the years has varied, but there's been some, some element of parliamentary democracy in Kyrgyzstan, even though the elites is still controlled in a few hands and the government is overall authoritarian. There's been some efforts to promote a parliamentary democracy, which ended or was highly curtailed for following political changes in, in 2020. Certainly uh, on those levels, then Kyrgyzstan stands out somewhat within the region. So how does Turkey view human rights in its relationships with the Central Asian republics? Is it more toward the EU stance who tend to want to see you at least making some progress toward human rights? Or is it more like China and Russia who are purely focused on business when it comes to these sort of issues? Certainly in the current era, I'm sure that uh, human rights does not play any role at all in relations between in bilateral relations between Turkey and any of the five states or indeed at a, at a regional level through the organization of Turkic states that's been recently renamed just last year. Perhaps in the past, in earlier phases of Turkish development of Turkish foreign policy, there may have been some focus on 
on, on human rights issues. I mean, Turkey's gone through huge changes in the last couple of decades as well. But certainly in this phase, Turkey's much more in the camp of Russia and China. One of the big issues unfolding between Turkey and Central Asia at the moment is the ongoing question around Turkmen protesters. We did an entire piece on Turkmenistan a while ago, and if you want to learn more about Turkmenistan and how we got here, you can check that piece out for a full analysis. But in summary, the government of Turkmenistan is highly repressive and has earned the title of the North Korea of Central Asia, with police regularly arresting and eliminating dissenting voices from the country. Many Turkmen protesters who are lucky enough to flee the country end up in the relative safety of Turkey. Once in Turkey, some of these protesters begin actively protesting to get the international community's attention in the relative safety of the Turkish streets. Turkey for years has allowed these protests to occur, but recently there's been a change in policy, and now Turkey is cracking down on Turkmen protesters, and in some cases, deporting them back to Turkmenistan, where they will almost certainly face dire punishment. So why has this change in Turkish policy come about, and what fate currently awaits Turkmen protesters trying to get the attention of the international community in Turkey. We're really concerned about this development. I'm pleased you've, you've raised it. As you say, there are, according to official figures, about 120,000 Turkmen citizens in Turkey. Unofficial estimates put it at 1 million or more. So it's a huge diaspora of mostly migrant workers doing low-paid, low-skilled jobs in a whole variety of sectors in Turkey. And a, and a small group of those are political activists or human rights activists who are concerned about what's going on at home, concerned about the fate of their relatives. I mean, these are migrant workers who send money back to their relatives in, in many cases, in most cases, they're concerned. And they've become activists in Turkey. Many have lived in Turkey for some time. They've run, they've been mounted small protests. They've run online chat groups. They've been part of unofficial diaspora opposition parties. Recently, I mean, since the middle of last year, middle of 2021, particularly in the autumn, in September and October, there's been a clampdown on these activities. I mean, one aspect is that many Turkmen in Turkey, their passports have expired because Turkmenistan refuses to allow uh, their citizens to renew their passports at embassies or consulates. They have to go back to Turkmenistan to do so. This is a form of control on the part of the Turkmen authorities. So many Turkmen... Citizens live in a sort of legal limbo a little bit in, in Turkey without, they have a residency permit, but they haven't got a valid passport. And for many years, Turkey lived with that, and the migration service was relatively tolerant and liberal on this issue. But they've started clamping down on that more. Several uh, Turkmen citizens were, were detained, and, and there were threats of them to be deported. We reported in October last year, Human Rights Watch reported that the Turkish authorities had drawn up a a list of 25 Turkmen activists who were, were planned to be deported. Several of them turned up in prison. Yeah, as we see this, this was clear evidence of, of Turkmen government putting pressure on Turkish authorities to clamp down on these opposition activities. Turkmenistan is intolerant entirely of, of opposition activities in Turkey, but also tries to clamp down on it outside in Turkmenistan, but clamps down on it outside Turkmenistan as well. And it appears that perhaps for geopolitical reasons, Turkey is a little bit more open now to, to this pressure from, from Turkmenistan to, 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 to act on Turkmenistan's part. This could well be because of ambitions to, again, to play a more central role among countries with, a, with, with Turkic linguistic roots. As we know, that the organization of Turkic states 
that organization was was renamed and created as it were in November last year and we see a connection between this clampdown on Turkish Turkmen activists and the holding of this summit one point i would add is that there are also reports of Turkmen citizens who are very loyal to the government in Turkmenistan also being active in Turkey and harassing the political activists or the human rights activists who go on protests who run online chat forums and so on uh, and and also thre- raising threats to their relatives back in Turkmenistan the Turkmen activists in Turkey have complained about this to the police um sent in screenshots of harassment they've been getting filed reports and in many cases the police have not acted on this in Turkey so we are concerned that that the police are, are turning a blind eye to this this harassment going on on the streets and on the internet in Turkey against people with legitimate resident permits and long-term residents of the country is this just an issue faced by the turkmen citizens living in turkey or is this something that the tajik uzbek or kyrgyz citizens in turkey might also face whilst living there human rights watch in the past has worked on the the labor conditions in a sense the labor rights of kyrgyz and kazakh migrant workers in russia um and we follow that that closely i mean there's lots of issues around the rights of their workers i mean the rights of in many cases denied working conditions other aspects of their their rights the registration issues and so on um that's also an issue in itself in turkey as well I mean, besides the harassment of political activists um there's there's often reports of abuses of migrant workers often women migrant workers from 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 central asia in, in turkey in 2019 an uzbek migrant worker a woman committed suicide she'd been working in the in the home of a, of a politician in turkey in fact and um and her working conditions in her life were so terrible that she committed suicide that got a lot of headlines but that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of uh information we're aware of of of, of bad working conditions difficult lives for migrant workers in turkey so it's a bit difficult to compare but there are similar trends in both russia and turkey i would say One thing the Turkish leadership is fervently against is the Gulenist movement. The movement is an Islamist fraternal movement led by a Muslim preacher Fatullah Gulen and is vocal in its opposition to the current Turkish government. Turkey is putting large pressure on the Central Asian republics to first close down all of their Gulenist schools in their countries and even possibly designated the Gulenists as terrorists the same way Pakistan has done recently. How successful do you think Turkey will be in getting the Central Asian Republics to close down the Gulenist school and abandon any work of the movement? It's difficult to tell, but it certainly increased pressure from Turkey to to act against these movements. I mean, the case uh, last summer 2021 um, in Kyrgyzstan of Orhan Inandi is an important one. He was the he's a 53-year-old Turkish Kyrgyz national who was uh, who ran a whole series of schools aligned with the Gulenist movement in Kyrgyzstan and was uh, kidnapped basically by we believe by Kyrgyz and Turkish um authorities by intelligence of intelligence officers 31st of May and then turned up in Turkey in early July and was paraded on video by president himself president Erdogan as being one of the one of the leaders of the Gulenist movement which of course since 2016 in Turkey has been labeled a terrorist organization so this was a very brazen move by by Turkey to extend its efforts to to round up alleged Gulenists 
and bring them back to, with forced extraditions, bring them back to Turkey. He's been doing this in other parts of the world for several years now. By the way, the UN specialist groups within the UN has made statements and raised concern about this process. It's a, it's a, it violates Turkey's international human rights commitments. But this move with Mr. Inandi was the first time that's really happened in Central Asia. And that's deeply worrying because these schools um, and these movements continue to play an important part in Central Asian society. And as long as they get permission, continue to get permission from the authorities, they should be able to continue to do that. And of course, somebody like Mr. Anandi, who's also a Kogi citizen, should have the rights to live normally and peacefully in Kyrgyzstan. What is the human rights situation going to be like in Central Asia going forward? Two weeks ago, we saw huge protests in Kazakhstan and a pretty heavy-handed response from the Kazakh government. We've seen a stepping back of some human rights under Kyrgyz strongman president Sergei Taparov. We've seen Uzbekistan with some incredibly toxic rhetoric in its recent elections. And Tajikistan is currently cracking down on everything from beard to Palmari nationalism. Do you think the human rights situation in Central Asia is going to improve or get worse over the next few years? I'm relatively pessimistic on that front. For instance, there was some modest optimism about what was happening in Uzbekistan. Um, but now the, the, the human rights reforms have largely stalled or even reversed. It's really unclear what's going to happen in, in Kazakhstan now. Courageous protesters went on the streets. But um, now the government is being very uh, repressive towards those who protested. 10,000 people, the current count of those in detention and so on. So there's a, it, it, it's a bleak picture for, for, for Central Asia um, on a human rights front. Of course, one should recognize there are activists in all of these countries who are doing their best to, to, to stand up for human rights. So we should not lose hope. And we, we, human Rights Watch works hard with these, these people to protect human rights. But it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult period. And that's why other countries, we would love to call on Turkey to do so, but that would be rather naive. But other countries, perhaps in Europe, in the US, elsewhere, should have a focus on human rights in Central Asia and do their best to, to use their leverage to impress upon the states in Central Asia to see the reasons why it's in their interest to improve their human rights records. We've done several pieces here at the show discussing the current tussle between Russia and China in the Central Asian region. Haken of countries like Kazakhstan with the culture, movies and tourism is dominated by Russian influence, but where China is the largest investor in the country and has major influence over many of the Kazakh elites. As we've seen in many cases across Central Asia, China has no trouble winning the economic fronts, but kind of struggles with the cultural ones. That seems to be Russia's area of influence. It's why you can go to most of the Central Asian republics and the lingua franca would be Russian, not Mandarin. But now we're starting to see a new wave of Central Asian nationalism, and in some aspects, mild de-Russification. Again, mild for now, but every trend starts somewhere, and Turkey might be seeing an opening to insert themselves into, to capitalize on the Turkic heritage and gain control on some of the cultural footholds Russia may lose. Could this make Turkey the balance of power to counter China in the aspect that China struggles in? Well, for that, we turn to our final guest. Part four, the balance of power. Well, I mean, it's obviously they have cultural and linguistic affinities. Um, they have, you know, they 
regard each other as as a kindred and and a natural partners and this is something that they wanted you know right after independence uh, you know the turkic speaking central asian states kazakhstan kyrgyzstan turkmenistan and uzbekistan were all kind of hoping that turkey would step in and um you know one keep russian influence out uh now that they were finally done with that but but you know also have uh build a, help them build a bridge to other partnership you know with the west since nato is a member of or i mean uh, since turkey is a member of nato you know that uh this would by by being friends with turkey you'd also be friends with western europe at the same time so it's it's really a natural partnership bruce pinier is a long-time journalist and correspondent covering central asia bruce currently writes for radio free europe and radio free liberty and has also written for the economist jane's intelligence oxford analytica freedom house the cairo review fsu oil and gas as well as al jazeera and many more bruce is one of the most influential writers when it comes to central asia and we're thrilled to have him back on the show today. You know, a lot of that depends on what happens with Turkey. Um, you know, the, obviously their economic situation is not looking real good at the moment. I think, you know, they, they've certainly always had uh, ties and and with Central Asia, so that that's not ever going to go away. Now, if they're going to be able to keep expanding their relationship like we've seen recently, uh, you know, then then that does create a whole different dynamic for Central Asia. And I, and I would imagine that you know this is kind of like Turkey ascendant recently, right? You know, they were. Uh, for years and years, you heard about Turkey, but you didn't, you know, there weren't Turkish troops uh, in Libya or, or Syria, uh, you know, and and, um, and they didn't have drones that they were, uh, you know, selling to other countries. And, and like we saw, Turkey and, and its drones played a huge role in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict between Azerbaijan and, and Armenia. And of course, uh, Turkey naturally was on the side of Azerbaijan since this is another Turkic-speaking state too. So, you know, I think the Central Asians are probably in a lot of ways, hoping that, and not just the governments too, I would say, but probably the people, but probably probably hoping that Turkey continues on this on this vector that it's on now of becoming much more of a global influence and, and trying to become something of a global power in its own right. You know, we know that uh, Central Asia has long experience with Russia, and while they're happy to be partners with Russia, they don't want to fall too far under Russian domination, although it's almost impossible for some of these countries so far, you know, and then uh, and then they got China on the other hand, which has been, you know, a, a really an, an old, you know, acquaintance, I suppose, or something, uh, you know, a known entity for them for a long time, but it's only in the last 20 or 25 years, 25 years, I guess, um, that they've really had close experience with China, and now they're all in debt, you know, to China too. So, um, you know, being right next door to two giants like that, Russia and China, it would be good to have another strong partner, you know, on the in the on the global stage um, that would be able to speak up for them and help them out, you know, if, if they needed to. And, and I would also add here, too, that, you know, Turkey Erdogan has shown that he he's willing to stand up to Russian President Putin. And he's also called out China on the Uyghurs, uh, you know, too. So these are two. If you're looking at, at Turkey from Central Asia, you got to be encouraged by this, that, that uh, you know, this guy is as strong or is trying to be as strong a leader as the Russian leader or the Chinese leader, um, you know, and that, that bodes well for Central Asia because, again, this is a much more natural partnership. They can speak to each other without translators for the most part. I mean, it's that intelligible. Most of it, most of it would be understandable to most to the people on either side of this. If Turkey continues to go as it is going, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how the spheres of influence um, start to develop in Central Asia in the coming years. Russia hasn't pushed back too hard against Turkish influence in Central Asia at this stage. But Turkey also hasn't been going after some of Russia's particularly soft points. 
if Turkey were to try and gain influence in Muslim communities in you know, the south of Russia, like Chechnya or South Ossetia or Abkhazia or Dagestan, how would Russia respond to that? If Turkey starts, you know, if for some reason in the Kremlin they're starting to worry that Turkish influence is supplanting Russian influence in Central Asia in some serious way, um, you know, what, what lengths are they willing to go to to try to negate that uh, if it was forming? I mean, um, are, they, are they really going to uh, openly make, you know, make threats or something against Turkey and tell them to back off or, or how are they going to work that out? You know, right now, Russia, Russia is very militaristic at the moment, uh, certainly with all those troops on the border of Ukraine, you'd have to say. But, how, you know, how, how far can they do that if they're really going to do that? Uh, you know, um, they're going to they're going to antagonize Turkey, an old enemy uh, of Russia, without a doubt. Um, you know, what exactly would they do to step in? I mean, in a lot of ways they've seen this happen with China already. Uh, you know, China's security cooperation was started to improve you know, significantly with the Central Asian states about t- starting about 20 years ago. And then all of a sudden, you know, Putin made a big push about 2008 for the Collective Security Treaty Organization that Russia leads and, and is a CIS organization. And they, they did push out China then. Uh, you know, they made it clear that the, it was that Central Asia was still Russian or and or CSTO country. Um, you know, uh, what will they do um, if, if Turkey starts to and Turkey already is it has military cooperation with the Central Asians. Um, they're selling them weapons, uh, for instance. Um, so it's a real question about Russia, what Russia will be able to do to try to counter Turkish influence if you know, if it starts to increase noticeably in Central Asia and, in some, like I said, some, in some way threatens Russian influence in the region. Will they try to work something out uh, or will they actively try to try to push back? So Turkey has quite good ties with Turkmenistan, and they are becoming much more influential in the country in recent years. If Turkmenistan President Garbanguly Berdimuhamedov wants to have a sudden and fatal heart attack, do you think Turkey has the influence there to help put an even more pro-Turkish candidate on the throne, or is it more likely to just go to his son and, and business will continue as usual? Well, that's a good question. You know, I mean, you can... You can be fairly sure that, that Moscow will also be trying to get their guy in at the same time, which doesn't mean that, that their guy won't have <laughs> some leanings toward Turkey, too. Um, you know, I, this is this is another example of why it's good. You know, if Turkey is um, if Turkey is ascendant, as I as I suggested, they are. And in fact, increasingly have more say in global affairs, you know, for Turkmenistan, who's been trying to get this um, Trans-Caspian ga- natural gas pipeline. Uh, over to Azerbaijan. I mean, this would be this would be a great moment for them to try to get that going and have Tur- get Turkey on their side, which would be very easy because that gas pipeline is supposed to ultimately connect to a Turkish ga- gas pipeline, Tanap, uh, and run all the way through Turkey. So, um, you know, this is an example of where Turkish, Tur- strong Turkish Turkmen ties would really benefit Turkmenistan in, in a time when Turkey is, uh, you know, considered something of a global power in its own right. You know, they could push back on the Iranian and, and Russian objections to construction of the pipeline, you know, and this again creates kind of a conflict situation like Turkish influence in Central Asia would. Um, so I'm sure Turkey would like to see their guy in there. Um, I think even if Moscow puts their guy in there, it's going to be, you know, tough for uh, someone in Turk, a leader of Turkmenistan who can speak Turkmen to Turkish leaders and and know that he will be understood, you know, without having to resort to a second language or anything. Uh, you know, and, and to, it'd be hard for a leader like in that situation to totally ignore uh, Turkish overtures or, or, you know, offers of, of 
greater partnership in some way or another. Uh, I just can't believe that would happen. Um, so, you know, like I said, it'll be a competition to see who they get in after Berdy Mukhamedov, although it looks like his son's going anyway. Um, but like I said, I, you know, they need to get money. Their economy's in bad shape. That, that Trans-Caspian pipeline is an easy project to get through, but it's suffered from, um, you know, objections from Tehran and Moscow about possible environmental consequences. And if you get Turkey to send its people in there and say, we don't see any problem, uh, we're willing to back this, uh, you know, and it's not, it's running through Azerbaijani and, and Turkmen waters. And of course, both these are Turkic speaking states, um, you know, that, that it's nobody else's business what, what happens here. So a nation we haven't talked about a lot in this piece is Iran, whose borders are less than 20 kilometers from the Turkmen capital, Ashgabat. So why doesn't Iran have the same influence in most of these Central Asian neighbors like Turkey is beginning to? It's the cultural and, and linguistic affinities are certainly a big part of that. But, you know, past that, um, we got to look, you know, it, it, first of all, um, Iran, it, most people speak Farsi. It's a Persian language. It's not a Turkic language. And, and you know, and, and 100 or 200 years ago, uh, people on both sides of the border were spoken, uh, probably would have spoken Farsi first, but some would have spoken Turkmen. Um you know, so so that's already kind of one barrier there. But but I think the greater barrier for the Turkmen government is the fact that Iran is a theocracy. Uh, you know, they're Sunni Muslims. Okay, so there's that. Uh, I should have put that into the the Turkmen are Shias uh, mainly, um, although the religion is kind of um, kept it at, at arm's length in Turkmenistan. But anyway, there's they're they're Sunnis and the Iranians are Shias. But the Iranian, like I said, for the Turkmen government, I think the worst thing is that the Iran is a theocracy. It's a country run by religious clerics. Uh, you know, and, um, and and this is exactly what they don't want in Central Asia, not just in Turkmenistan, but all over Central Asia. They don't want anyone to have the idea that that, that is a possible alternative system of governance. Um, so that that is a huge barrier for uh, Turkmen, Turk, or I mean Iranian Turkmen relations. Uh, you know, they can cooperate on some economic projects, but I, I don't ever see them being extremely close uh, if the situation as it is now continues. One country Turkey has been putting a lot of focus into recently is Kyrgyzstan, particularly when it comes to the sales of drones and advisors. How would you sum up the relationship between Turkey and Kyrgyzstan? Well, it's, you know, they have, have had their moments in history, uh, that's for sure. Um, you know, there was Gulen schools in Kyrgyzstan and, and Erdogan's one of them closed for a long, long time. And um, they, they ended up changing the name of them. Finally, as, as something of a strange compromise. But I mean, uh, there was times where former Kyrgyz president Atambayev, went, uh, you know, he was being pressed to close those schools. And he, he just said, it's none, of, no, it's none of Turkey's business, you know, what we what schools we have open here and what ones we don't, um, you know, so indicating that he had no intention of, of closing them down. But like I said, they just cha- changed their name uh, and they still seem to be functioning as far as I know. You know, but but then again, I you know, Turkey's Turkey has a new push in Central Asia that coincides with its growing influence, you know, in world politics. Uh, so they they've been recently in recent months they've really been making a push. Um, you know, and part of that was giving selling drones to Kyrgyzstan. You know, the the symbolism of this is is incredibly significant at the same time too for the Kyrgyz people, right? See, that's where Turkey works on two different levels. It's one thing to be in good with the government, like the Chinese, but you know the 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 people resent that, resent that kind of stuff, uh, and resent the growing relationship. And it, it, to some extent, that's true with Russia too. Uh, but you know, it's not it, with Turkey. 
when they deal with the Central Asian states, the governments like to deal with them, it seems, and uh, and the people appreciate that too, because like I said, there, there are a lot, a lot of affinities there. So when, when Turkey sells drones to Kyrgyzstan right after the disastrous Tajik-Kyrgyz conflict at the end of April that, you know, Kyrgyzstan really took the worst end of, uh, you know, the border conflict, they, they lost 36 dead, they had, you know, uh, more than 150 people wounded, the massive damage to buildings and, uh, you know, and villages. And uh, whereas the Tajik side suffered much, much less, you know, and seems to have initiated the, the actual military part of that very brief campaign. So when, when all of a sudden Turkey sells them the same drones that were used by the Azerbaijanis to, you know, repel Armenian forces in Nagorno-Karabakh, of course, the Kyrgyz, even the Kyrgyz people go great. You know, this is just the help we need. It's, it's in the long run, it's probably real bad for Central Asian security. Uh, you know, because you hate to think that some hothead in Kyrgyzstan is, is going to decide that they're going to use those drones on Tajik forces along the Kyrgyz-Tajik border. That would spark a much worse conflict than we saw last April, probably. You know, it's kind of dangerous, but that's not what I'm sure that's not what, you know, that's not a concern for the Kyrgyz people. I don't think they're looking that far down the road. I think what they see now is that they they took the you know the short end of the stick, so to speak, in that conflict in the end of April, and uh, but now they're better armed, and they're armed with the same stuff that helped the Azerbaijanis you know chase the Armenians out of Nagorno out of areas in Nagorno Karabakh. So uh, that for them will will make Turkey appear to be a fantastic friend and partner. And how involved do you think the Turks would be willing to get in a conflict between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan? Do you think they'd just be willing to sell the Kyrgyz weapons, or would they be willing to supply PMCs and intelligence sharing to assist the Kyrgyz in the conflict? Like I said, they do train with them. I don't think I think their involvement would probably be real similar to what we saw in Azerbaijan. I wouldn't see Turkey supporting anything in Central Asia that would change the borders. Uh, you know, because that that's just too much confusion, and it sets off. It just makes whatever conflict is there much worse and much more unresolvable. Um, you know, especially when, like I said, the four of the countries there are Turkic-speaking states. I can't see, can't even begin to imagine Turkey would take the side of one over another. In the case of Tajikistan, as you pointed out, this is a Persian-speaking state. They're they're much closer to Iranians, even though Tajiks are Sunnis up there. But uh, they're much closer to Iranians than they are to you know, in terms of cultural and linguistic affinities anyway, uh, than they are to their Central Asian neighbors, really. Um, although they have a, a common history, which kind of brings them together. But anyway, um, you know, I, I could see Turkey, if, if Kyrgyzstan, if there was another conflict along the Kyrgyz-Tajik border, and sadly that seems almost inevitable because there's never a, a week of peace out there, um, you know, would they have a few people down there to make sure that Kyrgyz knew how to operate the equipment that they just sold to him? Probably. Um, I don't, you know, like I said, I can't imagine that anyone advising Kyrgyzstan in such a situation it would tell them that taking Tajik land would be part of the solution to their problem. That that, like I said, that won't solve anything, and it just perpetuate guarantees to perpetuate the problem. Another country, if it was Iran, say invading Turkmenistan, which sounds pretty ludicrous, but this is a more clear example of something where Turkey would take the Turkmen side openly, I imagine, at that point. So China is building, quote-unquote, border patrol posts on the Tanji border with Afghanistan to make sure extremism doesn't flow out of Afghanistan and into areas of the border of Chinese Xinjiang. Do you think we might see Turkey also looking to base troops in the region to further assert itself in the area? 
that's one area where Turkey would probably prefer that Russia and China spent their money on it. Um, you know, Turkey's also trying to get some kind of relationship established with the Taliban. Uh, so they don't want to do anything on the Central Asian borders that would look unfriendly toward the Taliban. And really, the Central Asian's main security worry is not the Taliban. It's Central Asian citizens who are in a variety of other militant groups in Afghanistan right now. Some of those groups are allied with the Taliban and some of them are not. Uh, but that's that's Central Asia's biggest worry at the moment. The, he, he, one couldn't imagine the Taliban would invade a Central Asian country. It would create a huge military conflict, and it would certainly bring Russia into the conflict immediately, and possibly China on some level. You never know, but certainly Russia. It would uh, be costly and, and for no good purpose, like I said. But those militants, on the other hand, the more Afghan, if Afghan peace does settle in or something like stability or something like that, they're going to be less and less welcome in these countries, especially because they're ethnic Tajiks, Uzbeks, and Turkmen. Um, and this is the real threat to Central Asia. And, and, you know, what could Turkey do? Except maybe reconnaissance drones. But, I'm, you know, Russia is giving those to Tajikistan already. Turkmenistan has bought those, um, some of them from Turkey. You know, what, what could Turkey do at this point? And like I said, if there is some big military problems or, or terror, a problem with terrorism or something like that, Russia is the one that's, that's promised to do, take care, help take care of this. Um, you know, why would Turkey spend their money on that when Russia has committed to doing just that. So Russia has the recent historical and language influences. China has the money that they can chuck at the region. So how could Turkey ever hope to really compete against these two giants for influence over Central Asia? The Russian influence in that region is going to be there for a while. Like I said, the, the big advantage Turkey has is it's, like I said, it's more like, you know, the Russians are foreigners to the Central Asians. There's no doubt about it. Even with the, the long history and stuff, the fact was, you know, they regard themselves as being Russian colonies. So the Russians are foreigners. The Turks are cousins. So they, they're going to look at them different. Uh, you know, it, it, it's going to be interesting to see how both Russia and Turkey develop. If Russia became weaker and Turkey became stronger, then you could see Turkey moving in on Central Asia. Um, China's going to be, I think... China's, Chinese influence, it's only my opinion, but I think Chinese influence will probably be diminishing in the in the coming years. Uh, they already have a huge influence and, and they will for a, a while because Central Asians own, in some, in some cases, so much money they can't pay them back, uh, you know, anytime soon at all. And so China's always going to have an influence. They've shown they're the only ones that are willing to spend really large amounts of money in Central Asia. But the thing is, They've spent all the really large amounts of money in Central Asia that they're going to because everything that that they wanted built with Central Asia is built, uh, you know, almost all of it. Anyway, the oil pipelines, the gas pipelines, the roads and railways that connect Central Asia to China. Most of that was built even before Belt and Road became was a, a stated po you know, project of the Chinese government. I, I always said that what they did in Central Asia in between 2000 and 2000. 11, 12, uh, was the blueprint for Belt and Road because they saw all of a sudden what could happen if you expanded these these networks, infrastructure networks. You know, the, the Chinese influence, just because people are getting real wary of that, and also the, even the governments, you know, certainly in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan and Turkmenistan for that fact, have seen what happens when you run up a huge debt, uh, you know, and, and that you can't, it's going to be really hard for you to pay off and, and get out from under for a long, long time. So they're kind of souring on that whole, uh, you know, on being really, really too close to China. Um, so I think while Turkey might not be able to spend as much money as China has, 
in Central Asia ever will be able to spend that as much money as China has. The fact is that China is spending less money in Central Asia now, and, and probably soon won't have to spend very much at all. You know,、uh, it seemed to me that their policy now, having built all these major projects that they wanted to, is every year, you know, they get they select another project which costs a hundred or two hundred million dollars in Central Asia, which is a lot for most of the Central Asian countries, but is nothing for, you know, the Chinese government,、um, just to keep the Central Asians hooked and show them, you know, it's kind of like buying off loyalty or something. Actually, at that point, you know, so they can they can fund these projects that no one else can, that are only good for the Central Asian countries, you know, themselves. Small hydropower projects, thermal pro,、uh, power plant projects,、uh, new roads, whatever, something like that. And no one else is going to be going to fund that money. But it's still, it's not, it's not that multi-billion-dollar gas pipeline projects, and you know, and oil pipeline projects, and railways and stuff that they've spent in the past. So that's going down. And and Turkey won't have to spend a huge amount of money to keep pace with China because China won't be spending as much money in Central Asia. And, you know, and again, if someone, if the Turks come and build something, people will probably remember that and like them more for that. Whereas when the Chinese build something、uh, in Central Asia, you know, if, even when people remember that the Chinese are the ones that built that,、uh, they don't, they don't feel like very appreciative. At least the ones I've run into, and that's over a pretty wide area over in many years,、um, they, it's not like they really feel appreciative. For that kind of stuff, it works on all kinds of. I'll give you one example. This is kind of a tangential, but I was when I was in Kyrgyzstan driving around one time. I, I got some guy and I told you know as a driver, and I hired him as a driver to drive me all around Kyrgyzstan, and he would never stop at, at、uh, petroleum stations that were run by the Chinese because he said their their petroleum, their benzene, gasoline was was worse quality than the Russian ones. You know, and and I have no idea if that's true or not. The Chinese own the oil, only oil refinery in Kyrgyzstan. But anyway, that's what everyone thought, because I started asking people. I'm like, if you could go to a Chinese-owned gas station or a Russian-owned gas station, which would you go to? And everyone said the Russian-owned gas station because everyone knew that their gasoline was much better quality than the Chinese one. So this is the kind of stuff that happens. I don't know if that's true or not. And like I said, the Chinese have a refinery right in Kyrgyzstan. It, it shouldn't it shouldn't be true if it is true. Uh, you could just, you know, do something to get the quality up, but that's what everyone believed, you know. And I think that's what China is going to suffer from. Even when they did, if they did something great, I think people are going to tend to water that down a lot and not consider it a major achievement. Whereas the Turks, you know, they come in and, and build a new water purification system or, or something in a town, and probably everyone will remember for twenty or thirty years that Turkey came and did that. So, do you think the Turks are going to gain or lose influence in Central Asia over the next ten years? Barring a, a major collapse of the Turkish government and you know its resurrection into some other form, I think Turkey has now shown over the course of 30 years they have a stated policy of, of improving relations with Turkic-speaking states, and that means for the Central Asian states, and they never forgot that. You know, and it's something that they want, and it's something that the Central Asians want too.、Uh, so it, it really it just is only a matter of How much Turkey will be able to、uh, extend its influence, expand its influence in Central Asia? You know, do they have the finances to do that,、uh, or whatever other resources are at their disposal to do that? But like I said, it seems that both sides have signaled already that they're they really want a closer partnership, and the Central Asians would be would greatly appreciate having a you know. They're balancing between Russia and, and China. Like I said, now they would love to have a third strong power involved in the region that they could also. It helps them, you know, to balance out things.、Uh, if there's something Moscow and, and Beijing don't like, then it would be 
nice to have a strong Turkey in there so that Ankara could say, you know, we're, we're what the Central Asians do, are doing is right. Uh, it's none of your business because all these countries are sovereign states, um, you know, and, and leave them alone. Turkey once controlled the crossroads of world trade. If you wanted to trade silk from China to the palaces of France, you had to go through the Ottomans. If you wanted to trade by land from Africa, it meant going through the Ottomans. How the Ottomans got to that point is very reminiscent of today. You see, no one ever thought the Byzantium would fall, but it fell during a period where other powers like the Polish, the whole of Roman Empire, the French and the Hungarians were all competing back home with each other. So when the Ottomans appeared, many in Anatolia chose their side when they arrived because they culturally had much more in common with them than the leaders in Constantinople that claimed to be the successor states of Rome, 1,500 kilometers to the west. It was winning the cultural hearts and minds of people that catapulted the Ottomans from a small tribe between the Mongol remnants and the leftovers of Rome to one that, at one point in time, was the most influential power on the planet. Will the Turks be able to once again leverage that culture and influence to build up a great empire of trade again? Or is this as far in as the Turkish tide comes? Well, that's a question that'll be asked throughout Turkic Central Asia, whilst Russia and China watch to see how far the Turkish tides will come in. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. I think that anyone who's ever met me over the years knows about my deep interest in Central Asia. And this is a subject I've wanted to cover for a while now. This year is already off to a raging start and is even busier than we've ever been. With extra analysis, a special mini-series coming up, more content on our website, and even more episodes. All of which can be found on the website www.theredlinepodcast.com. You can find all of our links and info for Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at Mike Elliott Oz, Oz is in Australia. This episode is dedicated to friend of the show, Louise Socrate, who is our latest patron to sign up as of time recording. This show is only possible with the support of listeners like Louise, who donate a small amount of money each month to keep this show going, and we cannot thank them enough. So if you feel like you could spare a couple of dollars, we'd really greatly appreciate it. So Louise, this episode on Turkish influence in Central Asia is thanks to you. As usual, here are three book recommendations. The first is Dictators Without Borders by friend of the show, Alexander Cooley, for a fantastic analysis on how the governments of the Central Asian Republics work. The second is The Making of Eurasia by Moritz Piper for a look at the emerging competition in Central Asia between Russia and China. And the third is Turkey's Pivot to Eurasia by Emre Yerisin for a look at Turkish plans in multiple theatres. I want to thank this week's guests, Alex Kokhtarov, Matthew Breiser, Hugh Williamson, and Bruce Panier. All of you are amazing to work with as always, and we look forward to having you back soon. I also want to thank my staff, Owen Swift, the producer, Perry Grace and Daniela Zivella, head research assistants and writers, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Ross Crabtree, our media specialist, Joe Hawth on our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, Nick Much, our field correspondent, as well as Jonah Gunn and Robert Sutton, our new production assistants. I'm incredibly proud of this team, and I am very keen to see all the great work they'll do in 2022. The Red Line will be back in a fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Red Line podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. 
For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.